Thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you allowed us to see another day that we can gather, gather here corporately to worship and praise your holy name. Lord, I pray that hearts were being prepared all through last week to enter today, Lord, and uh, that we set in our minds what we would like to offer you, Lord, and we want to hear from you today through your word as you have provided uh, to us this canon of scripture that we can learn from and grow from, that we may be better for your kingdom, Lord, that we can point people towards you. As we open up these texts, Lord, and, and do this overview of Ruth and Samuel, we pray that you are glorified and that hearts are changed. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So, we just finished the book of Judges, and uh, it seemed pretty grim, pretty grim for the, for the people of Israel, right? Uh, so then we, uh, I'm taxed with doing the overview of Ruth and Samuel. Um, and I like how uh, our study notes uh, put it in the Old Testament survey book that we are uh, using partly as references as, uh, it's not broken up in First and Second Samuel, but it says Samuel. Uh, we know that chapters and divisions didn't come later uh, on in Scripture. These were written as uh, whole letters and thoughts and pieces. Uh, but we're thankful for chapters and verses because it gives us addresses on, on where to find information. All right. Uh, so as we uh, leave Judges and we come to Ruth, uh, let's just talk about just some of the uh, information regarding the author and the time of Ruth. Some believe that Samuel uh, did write this book of Ruth since David is mentioned and not his son Solomon, which is in chapter 4, verse 22. Uh, it is also believed that the book was before Sa Sa uh, Solomon. So if Samuel did write Ruth, it would date uh, to about 1000 B.C. Uh, Ruth 1.1 gives us the setting. During the rule of judges and the time of famine, uh, during a time when it seemed many of Israel, and Israel was turning away from God to idols, uh, we see a gentle turning from idols to God. The genre of Ruth uh, can be listed as a narrative or a short story. Some even titled it a, a novel. Okay, the main themes that you'll find in Ruth is loyalty, provision, and redemption. Loyalty, provisions, and redemption. So we start off, chapter 1, uh, we see that we start off with three widows. We have Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a stressful time. You have this, this older woman who had sons who died, and her husband is dead. And so now you have three widows that are, seem that there's no hope left for them, and what, where are they going to go? What are they going to do? How are they going to provide for themselves? And don't forget, there's a famine in the midst of the people. Not a good time to be a widow. Not a good time to be a widow. So quickly we see the loyalty. We see um, in chapter 1, 15 through 18, and I'll read it. It says, and, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. And to her gods. So return after your sister-in-law. So return after your sister-in-law. You start to see the sin of Naomi here in a sense of that she felt bitter. 
bitter, all right? Matter of fact, she wanted to call her name to be changed to bitter, wanted people to call her bitter because it seemed as God has ravished her, her whole life, her whole household, and she doesn't know how to, to come to grabs with that. Her love for God and her love for her husband and her sons has, is up in, up in turmoil. So she doesn't know how to translate that. But God has other plans, plans that there's no way that Naomi could have seen what was coming. But God had other plans, sovereign plans. And so she's saying to her daughter-in-law, return with your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more so if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. You see, the lesson is, there were two daughter-in-laws. One returned back to her pagan nation. All right, a Moabite woman returned to her worshiping of gods. Uh, we see before that God said that Israelites should not mix with the Canaanites, uh, but there was no specific order for the Moabites, though that it was not wise that a man of the Lord should take on a what? Non-believing spouse, right? And we see that though this Orpah was married to her son, to uh, Naomi's son, and did not change her heart. She still longed after her gods. Matter of fact, she was very quick to return. She left. However, there was something there um, when it came to Ruth. Naomi had been a testimony, even though she didn't see it or not, to Ruth, to her daughter-in-law. Man, is there a lesson there <laughs> to how we live our lives and how uh, we see our family interactions and what's going on. And even though that we may have family, that are married to uh, pagans, those who hate and despise God, what are we doing in their lives? What are we setting examples for that would make them want to leave their gods to follow the God that we serve? And so that's what we have here in the story of Ruth. So also we see here the provision, the provision that God has set forth. So in chapter 2, verse 3, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. So gleaning appears about 12 times. This was a provision for the poor, the sojourners, and the widows and orphans, orphans called to, together uh, the grain to get the, to gather the grain in the corners and borders of the field. So if you were an owner of the lands um, and you had wealth, of course, because wealth back then was not measured how we measure it now. It was how much cattle and grain you had. Um, it was to, to provide for your family. You were not to take everything out of the field. You were to leave some behind. If an ear of corn were to fall, you were not to go back and pick it up. If the corners and edges were to be left for the orphans and the widows. This was the provisions that God had made for his people. God foreseeing famines. God foreseeing widows. God foreseeing orphans. Remember, 
all because of sin, mind you. This all came to be because of sin, and even in sin, God made provisions. These provisions were made um, for such a time as this. And as we see that uh, Ruth took advantage of this gleaning, of this gleaning. Uh, matter of fact, there was a time where Ruth was in the field of Boaz, and she came back to Naomi, and Naomi looked at what she had. She goes, wow, where were you gleaning today? <laughs> what? <laughs> Who let you in their field, right? And that was an amazing uh, thought. As you read that, she was astonished with all what she was bringing back home. So not only was this person, this daughter-in-law who did not go back to her gods, she was gleaning in the field of her ancestors, of her mother-in-law, and she was providing for them as widows. Also, the provision was safety. In chapter 2, Boaz reaches out to Ruth and tells her to only glean in the field, for he has charged the young man working not to touch her. Please understand there's a reason why Boaz is saying this. See, there's other fields that weren't so kind. And there were men that were also working in the fields for the owner of the lands, and they would take advantage of these women. Guess what? Sin was in the world. And though God had made these provisions, sin still existed in the world. And so imagine these men, these brutal men, seeing these women, these widows and orphans gleaning, and they would come and have their way with them. So Boaz said, listen, Ruth, glean in my field, for I have charged a young man not to lay a hand on you. And this was very important. He provided her that provisions and safety and food for Naomi and redemption as well in this story. You see, we see the term the kinsman redeemer is to buy back the inheritance of a poor relative to buy back a person from slavery, or to build the family of a deceased relative. And as we see, after Boaz makes sure his checks and balances are correct in the story uh, by going to another man that actually has rights before him, and he says, hey, you know, there's a woman, her name is Ruth. She belongs, she's, she's a daughter-in-law of Naomi. You got first dibs. He said, after looking at the situation, he's like, ah, Boaz, you got her, right? And so then Boaz says, all right, I will take her to be my wife. And so we see here in chapter 4 that Boaz does take Ruth to be his wife. So let's recap. We see the start of a story where they're widows, no hope. Matter of fact, Naomi would make fun. Hey, let's say I do find a husband and I become pregnant. Are you willing to wait till they're old enough to marry for them to give you as husbands? Right? She's so, like, out of it at this point. She's like, just go. But we see the loyalty of this woman because of God and the provisions. And God uses this Moabite woman to provide for Naomi. And also, the main point here, things that, that Ruth, that Naomi could not have saw, is in the uh, last chapter. It's when she gives birth to who? Obadiah, who was a father of Jesse. And Jesse fathered David, which continued 
the lineage of Jesus Christ. You see, this redemption, this, these women that were saved did not realize that God was using them to work out this plan of salvation. So some things to consider, and I won't answer them, but the answer's in the scripture. If Naomi and Ruth were redeemed and they were initially saved and she would serve their God, how were they saved? Jesus wasn't born yet. And I'll give you a little answer to that question, a little hint of that when we go into Samuel. But it's very interesting to think about uh, how the plan of salvation works. One hint is the Alpha and the Omega. God is the beginning and the end. Though he is in time, we're in time, and we're reading through time, as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And so now we enter this book of Samuel. After we make that little pit stop, that story, that four chapters there, that sets up the line of David, which sets up the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We go into Samuel. Samuel, prophet, a.k.a. the kingmaker. <laughs> right? Oh, man, the kingmaker. This book is dated back in 975 B.C. First Samuel begins with the birth of Samuel and ends with the death of Saul. It covers about 90 years. Remember when I say you, when you're turning pages in the Bible, you're turning years and months. And so this book covers 90 years. Second Samuel covers David's time on the throne, and his reign lasted for about 40 years. The genre that we get uh, that this book comes from is an historical narrative. The first six chapters, uh, we see the conflict between Israel and the Philistines and the embarrassment and foul treatment of the Ark of the Covenant and that shenanigans that went on there. Um, and you will see what God did uh, to return that ark back home. So, like I said, I'm giving you this movie trailer of some of the points that, of course, we can't dive into. But the shenanigans there were, it was this awful. Um, um, matter of fact, uh, during that time when the Philistines would have the ark, the lady would name her son Ichabod and said, The glory of the Lord has left the camp. These names that come up. To carry that name, I would think about uh, how our culture is careful of naming our children. I always thought, of, i got to be careful how I name my child and make sure that the kids can't make fun of her at school or, or things like that. To carry a name, Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has left. Well, it's not a popular name to carry. <laughs> but it, 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 it stamped a time of sorrow, a time of embarrassment, a time of going away from the, from the righteousness of God. And it was a reminder. So anytime you would see this child, Ichabod, you remember why he had that name. And these stories would be passed on and passed on. Names had important meanings um, back then, and they still do now. And that's why we do are and are careful of what we name our children. But anyway, I digress from that. We see the hearts. Uh, we see Samuel um, becomes the judge of Israel in chapter 7. And Samuel's story is very interesting in the sense of, once again, you have Hannah, who's being ridiculed by another woman, another wife. And she's like, oh, you can't have kids. You can't have kids, right? And she's being ridiculed. And she goes to the Lord. And at first, she prays for a son. And then she, she thinks and she starts praying in the will of God. You know, when we pray and we say in Jesus' name, it's not just a stamp of or a tradition that we say, the reason why you should say, and the reason why we're saying in Jesus' name, matter of fact, is this, that 
you can pray in Jesus' name without saying in Jesus' name. And she was praying in the name of the Lord when she said, I will give him to you. Lord, if you give me a son, he is yours. And you can have and do what you want with him. Well, we see that God answers her prayer. And she bears a son. His name is Samuel. And he's a prophet. He's a prophet. When... Um, when we, when I read, I read this story. Um, when you, when you see about these prophets, and we look at our culture today, about so many people who aspire to be prophet and prophetess, they had no clue, no idea of what it meant to be a prophet. As a matter of fact, no one raised their hand in all the scripture to be a prophet. It was given, and they were chosen by God. This was something that you could not aspire to be. It was something that you were called to do in obedience. Matter of fact, we'll see some even run from the challenge of being a prophet. I don't, <laughs> hey, I don't want anything to do with it because they understood and they knew the severeness and the seriousness of the task. So we come here um, and there's different tales of stories of Samuel uh, uh, with uh, Eli. Matter of fact, when, when uh, there's a funny uh, uh, thing that transpires between Eli and Samuel when he's like, hey, did you call me? No, I didn't call you. Did you call me? No, I didn't call you. Did you call me? Okay, I know what's happening here. <laughs> he's like, go back to sleep, young lad. Right? He's like, it's the Lord calling you. And so Samuel's getting called at this young age, and he's hearing from the Lord for the first time. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine the call of being a prophet? And he's like, Samuel. Samuel. And he said, yes, Lord, it is me. Right? And then right away, one of the first things as the first task that he's tasked with as a prophet is to tell Eli that, hey, man, you're messing up. Your sons are in sin, and you knew about it. And so now the consequences will come. You see, God is very key in hope, upholding his name as holy. We see, the, we see not with Moses. We saw that with Moses. Moses was eliminated. Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land, but to only see it because he did not uphold his name as holy in front of the people. And so the fact that though Eli was not sinning directly and taking the sacrifices of the people from God and eating them like his sons were, he knew about it and he did nothing about it. And as a prophet, he was supposed to eliminate that issue as a father. Um, one point that that reminded me as a father is, what are we letting our children to get away with, right, uh, in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of the Lord? Because God would hold us accountable for how we raise and discipline our children as well. Uh, some would say and think that they're being a cool parent, or maybe it's inconvenient to discipline your child, uh, but inconvenience can have grave consequences, as we see here in Scripture. All right. And as a matter of fact, if we love our children, uh, it's very important that we do discipline them. The opposite of love is not discipline. Uh, people say, uh, I remember, t uh, to me, it's a good chance to, uh, to uh, share the gospel. I was in the store with my daughters, and I was, they were like, Daddy, Daddy, can, you know, can we get this? I said, yeah, you did good in school this week. Go ahead and pick you out a piece of candy. And I remember a young man saying, oh, be careful not to spoil the children. And I said, aha, gospel moment. I said, sir, I understand, and I do not spoil them. I discipline them daily. 
when we do not discipline them is when we spoil the children. It's not about giving them gifts is when we spoil them. It's when we don't discipline our children is when we spoil them. And so Eli spoiled his children, and he suffered a grave consequence. Both, all, both he and his sons died. Okay? So we go to chapter 8, chapter 8, uh, verse 7. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now point us a king to judge us like all the nations. And it's, and it's good to point out here, the last verse and chapter in Judges says, Israel's without a king. And now we see the people here saying that we need a king. So Samuel has done a lot, and you're going to have to read it, to know all that what Samuel did. And he's old now. So he's not this young lad. He is old now. And so now the people are like, hey, man, you're about to die. And your, 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 your offspring, they ain't walking like you walk. But we need us a king like the other nations. Once again, it's this mindset that we see over and over and over again with Israel. I want to be like the pagan nations from which we came. Right? So here's the irony of the story. It says they were without a king. Right? But... Uh, let me further read this on, and then I'm going to give you a statement. But, the, but the, the thing displeased Samuel, and they said, give us, that they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Here's the key. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You see, the irony is in Judges... When they said they were without a king, no, they had a king. The king was the Lord God Almighty, and they're rejecting him. So you can imagine Samuel was upset, and God had to go, hold on, Samuel, hold on. Don't get ahead of yourself. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So God corrects the thinking of Samuel, for God appointed and called Samuel. So the people are indeed rejecting God. What God has set in place, the people do not want. And even with the avid warning in verses 11 through 18, they still reject the wisdom and provisions of the Lord. Oh, man. Was God even more than fair to give him the warnings? Let me tell you the things that this king that you want is going to do. Now, wait a minute. They haven't even picked the king. How can God know this? He's a fortune teller. No, he is God, sovereign, all-knowing, omniscient God who is the beginning and the end. He already knows what's going to happen. His proven will and plan is always in, in play. Always in play. Nothing surprises God. This reminds me of a situation in my life when uh, I was a teenager going into high school as a freshman. Caught myself having a little money, had a job, and I was like, man, I want a car. I want a car, Right? And my dad was like, you know, okay, that's good. Look at a car. So I went out and looked for a car, and I came back with one. He's seen the price. He goes, well, you don't have that in cash. I'm like, yeah, but I can afford it monthly. He's like, he warned me. He said, son, you're young. You don't want a car payment. He warned me. He, he gave me all these things of if a car breaks down, you're going to have to fix it, and you still got to make the car payment. There's a higher insurance. And, he, and, and guess what I was hearing? Blah, 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 blah. Listen. Oh, man, get, I want this car, right? I didn't care. And this is what was happening here. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, your life, you was a little, yeah, yeah. Give me this car. So my father said, okay, 
go ahead, get the car. He knew what was happening. Man, let me tell you something. i never forget the day my alternator went out, <laughs> and it was $350, the same cost as my car payment. And I'm like, oh, man. My dad's like, hmm. <laughs> so, so here I am with a car payment riding the bus to school <laughs> until I get enough money to get my car working, you know. And so he knew what was happening. And so these people are saying thing. God's saying, listen, he's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. You, you're going to be at war and battle. And that's what happened. Every young man that was, that was fit for war, he took from the households, right? And he did everything uh, what, the God, what God has spoken, all right? And so when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the people chose Saul. The people chose Saul. And they chose him based on the worst thing you could possibly base a king on, his outward appearance. Come on. Come on. Tall, fit young man. Yeah, that looks like a king. Well, the people may have chosen Saul, but God's plan was still in in order. And so the reality is Saul did what God had told the people that he would do, and, God con- and, and Saul continually to disobey God time after time and after time. I mean, Saul thought he would um, be the priest, too, and the king uh, by offering sacrifice because he was impatient. He's like, oh, I ain't got to wait for these priests. I can offer up this. What, what's hard about burning up some meat, right? This is the arrogance of the king. This king of the people, mind you, he failed to eliminate a pagan ruler, and he talked to Median. right? This is what this king did. And in chapter 15, God has enough of it, and he rejects Saul. And let me just read a little bit of this to you. In chapter 15, starting at verse 18, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, Devote to destruction the sinners of the Malachites and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then do you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why do you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, hey, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on a mission on which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of the Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgag. So here's another arrogance of it. You see how he's di- the king is diverting what the people did? But who's the king? Just like, no, my household is my household. So his kingdom is his kingdom. He said, oh, the people took the oxen and the best things. But God said, devote them to destruction. Right. There was a time when Samuel, when uh, Samuel was walking, he said, wait a minute, didn't God say destroy all this? So why do I hear the lowing of sheaves, sheep? Like, what, I'm, what is this I'm hearing, man? Like, why are they here? Right. And so he's bringing this. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, listen, listen. I did a good thing, you see, because I know what God said. So I did kill all the ugly sheep. <laughs> but I, he wouldn't want me to take out. The, look, look at him. Look at this. Right? And look at the gold. Come on, man. The gold and the silver. 
Why? Listen, there's a way that seems right to a man, and it leads to death. God said destroy it. And so Samuel said something that was very key here. Samuel said something that was very key. It says, has the Lord has great has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, here's the key, to obey is better than sacrifice. Right? Oh, what a lesson. Yes, we come to church. We come and worship. Yes, we give our financial offerings. Yes, we may be in ministry. But what is our obedience like? What is our obedience like? Right? When... When reading this, you just can't help but to look at yourself. You have to look at yourself. To obey is better than sacrifice. And, and, only when, and only when obedience is in order can we offer up a sacrifice that is holy and, and pleasing to the Lord. Only when we are in obedience to God are our sacrifices pleasing, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It says here in verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption, see, presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. See, he presumed that God would be pleased in disobedience. It seems funny at the time, but please understand that he was thinking like, man, we took out these people and that was a lot of work. We should be paid and rewarded. I can't see how God would not want us to have this. But God said destroy it. And we see later on that Samuel had to finish what the king, the people's king, did not do. And we see, here's another funny humorous Agag comes. He he calls, Samuel calls for Agag. And Agag Agag was the uh, Amalekite's king, this pagan king. And he comes like this. Hey, what's going on? Right? He's, he's, He's at peace almost. Like, he's like, obviously the your bitterness has passed, and we're all cool now. You know, you got what you want. You got my best. And what does Samuel have to do to please God? What the prophets of today would never consider. He had to slice. Yes, it got bloody. Agag to pieces. He was a pagan king, and God wanted them wiped out. You see, when God said in Exodus, when he said, I will give you this land, They didn't know by what means this land would come. It wasn't like, hey, there's a plot of land. I'm going to want, there's a plot of land. There's a plot of land. Just go dwell in it. They took it by force. And this was a part of their provisions, things that they could not see. And God was not only giving them land, but God was using the fact that he was giving them land to take out his enemies, to take out his enemies, pagan nations that live to go against God. From this point on, it's interesting because Samuel turns away from Saul and Saul grab, reaches out and grabs a piece of Samuel and tears a part of his garment. And Samuel looks at him and goes, and so today as you torn my garment away, God has taken and torn the kingdom away from you. And from that point on, the fall of Saul was in place. Though Saul and the people did not see it, God was raising up another. God was raising up another. It was in the household of Jesse. And you know who this another was? David, King David. 
King David. Right? We see that David was placed in the house of King to, uh, Saul to serve him. And, and many attempts uh, on David's life uh, were tried when Saul tried to pin him against the wall with a spear. And, but nothing was going to thwart the, the plans of God. Uh, in fact, David got real close to Saul, and he honored Saul as king because God allowed him to be the king. And uh, he even got in a close relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan. And uh, it's interesting to read that story on how uh, this king who was disobeying God had a son that was the best friend of a king being raised up by God. And we see that the son of Jesse, David, was considered the warrior king the warrior king, because he would go in and out with his troops and he would fight the battles. And so we come to one of the most important things in Samuel. In 2 Samuel, verse chapter 7, is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant. And it's where I like to kind of spend the remainder of our time talking about the Davidic covenant. What was in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 4 through 17? Well, let me, let me break it down like this. Um, as the Old Testament survey did a great job of uh, breaking it down, uh, David's name will be great. Uh, we will talk about David's name even to this very day, right? David's name was be man great. David will have rest. He defeated plenty of enemies during his 40-year rule. David will have a house. David's bloodline will always have a seat on the throne. David will have a throne. David's bloodline will rule, and ultimately we see that in Jesus. David will have a kingdom, and this is actual land and actual rule. The Lord does with this with a blitz of I wills, which is unconditional. If you read chapter 7, there's two words that stand out. I will, I will. I will, I will. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like sovereignty to me. That sounds like providence to me. You see, we, we as Christians sometimes may have a problem with the doctrines of election, but we see it here. It's, it, was a, it's, it was a passive. It's, it shouldn't even be a problem because we see here all through the Old Testament, this is what he was doing. I will, I will, I will make your house great. I will make your name great. I will make sure that your kingdom will always be. God was electing even then. This is not no New Testament thing. This is a God thing throughout all of history. Throughout all of history. So this is what God had promised David. So God is using David as a means to establish his sovereignty, his will and plan. And how David responds depends on how David will experience it. As my brothers before me, Michael, has greatly put it, how will we experience this covenant? And as Scott talked about last time, how will we experience what God is doing and what God will do? And it's very important to, to know and to understand that God's plans cannot be thwarted, right? We have to understand that. And this whole history, and there's things where it seems like, oh, how, how's he going to work that out? How's he going to work that out? And he does, he does. He uses who once was a pagan woman to continue his line. 
it makes sense if he says that, listen, I could have the rocks cry out for me. That he could do anything, and anything was possible. So in 2 Samuel chapter 12, 10 through 15, we see how David was going to experience a covenant. Let me preface this first by saying that David, yes, was indeed a great king because God said he would be great warrior king. Matter of fact, he fought so many battles from his youth to now. There was a time when you were reading the story where David is swinging his sword and he's getting tired and somebody is coming in and they see that he's weak and they're like, oh, let me take out the king and his man take that guy out before he takes David out, and his men come to David and go, hey, David, look, appreciate everything you've done in the battles, but, man, we can't have you out here, man, anymore. Sorry. You're right? We can't have you out here in the field uh, uh, in these battles anymore, lest the glory of God is snuffed, right? And so just stay in your kingdom. We'll report back to you. But David sinned greatly against God, okay, because he was a man. He was a man. And uh, he sinned with Bathsheba. His sin was great. You know the story. He's seen her. He wanted her. He covered her, right? And just like we learned in the New Testament, once you give birth to the sin, baby, and you start nourishing it, it grows into a full-grown sin, and it beats you up, right? This thing that you coddle and you feed, it grew. He even took out, he even risked his own man to cover up his sin, with Bathsheba, right? He goes out, commits adultery, invites this man who's uh, Uriah back from battle, says, hey, man, have some rest, do all these things. He did all these shenanigans to try to cover his sin until ultimately he's like, I got to take this guy out. I got to kill him to cover my sin. And that's what he did. And so the word of Nathan, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and Nathan came to David and uh, he confronted David in his sin. And so God said, because you have sinned this way, this is how you're going to experience the covenant. The sword shall never depart, David. Absalom killed Ammon. Joab killed Absalom. And Solomon has Adonijah and Joab killed in 1 Kings. A whole history of bloodbath in in the kingdom of David. What else did God say? He said, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Absalom's rebellion. His own son strived to take the kingdom away from his father. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. Not in secret as you sin, David, but openly. You sin in secret, but I will do to you this in the open. Oh, that's how God works. He will reveal your sin, and he will put it out there on display so that you cannot run from it. And so in chapter 16, 21 through 22, David's own son Absalom goes in to his own wives. And the child will die. The child that he was conceived in sin will die. So the child born to Bathsheba dies in chapter 12. So David is left with the promises of God and how he would establish his kingdom, but also the consequences of his sin and how he would experience it. David was so torn by his sin and so humbled and humiliated. There was a time, as you were reading Samuel, where this 
man comes out and starts cussing the king, cursing at the king. And his men were set to take him out. And David goes, who knows that the Lord has sent him to do such a thing? Just let him do it. You see, this was the heart of David later. You'll see him in repentance and Psalms that he was, he knew his consequences would come. And he knew the results of his sins, so much so that his pride was made to where it was digressed and he was humbled that this man who came to cuss the king, he's like, let him do it. I deserve it. That's, the, that's, 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 that's how he was feeling. And this man couldn't really understand it. But David knew. He's like, man, listen, I shouldn't even be here right now. I should be dead. But God has spared me so that his word may go forth. And so God's plan will come to fruition in spite of anything that we do. And how we experience God's salvation and his work and his plan will depend on our obedience to his will. And his, and his purpose and his law. So let me explain to you this. What David was. David was chosen by God. David was a great and just king as promised. He was a warrior king defeating pagan nations. As a matter of fact, he, he defeated all these pagan nations. We see a hint of Genesis 3.15 as me and J.D. discussed a couple of weeks ago about I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you and your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so David was crushing enemies, enemies and enemies, right? A hint of what was to come. A hint of what was to come. But that very thing is a hint of what continued is that people looked at always the physical, destroy our enemies, Feed us. Give us rest. Give us land. David was also obedient at times. He ruled righteously according to the Lord. He was also a disobedient sinner, as we see in his adultery. So what was this is what David was not. He was not perfect, but Jesus Christ lived a perfect and holy and sinful life. Sinless life. Jesus was going to be the perfect one. He was not the Messiah. David was not the Messiah. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, i.e. mankind, they awaited the prophesied Messiah. Could you imagine Adam and Eve? Every time they had a child, it was like, is that it? Is he it? Is this it? Is that it? They awaited the Messiah. David wasn't it. But it will come from the line and bloodline of David. as promised. From the Moabite woman. Who was, a, who was was a pagan, a Gentile? He was king. He was not king over all creation, but just king over a nation. But Christ will be king over the world and is king over all creation. And this is the most important thing. We don't get anything out of this. Get this. He was not a sin conqueror. That was evident by his own sin. And it's one thing that people could not look at from the outward thing. People were looking at how could he defeat my physical problems and take care of my physical need. But people lacked the fact that they needed a king, which they had before they asked for this king, to take care of something that you could not see in the spiritual. But the evidence of your sin was out in the physical by your actions was your sin. 
They needed a king that could defeat their sin. And so when Jesus comes, the people, they even have Palm Sunday. Yes, he's coming to defeat our enemies, to take out all the Romans, right? Yes, victory. Nope, render unto Caesar what Caesar's. I'm here to defeat sin. I'm here to defeat the grave. I am here to defeat death once and for all. Out of all the judges, out of all the kings on the eye, this is Jesus Christ talking, can do that. And I'm paraphrasing his life. Only Jesus Christ could do that. And so what does that leave us now? As we vote for presidents, as we vote for senators and things like that, sure, they may alleviate abortion. We might have a king that says, a president that says, to be a homosexual is illegal. Any of that activity would be against. To, to, he may say it's a sin or a crime to commit a, a adult, adultery. And then now we have fault di- divorces, as we now we have no fault divorces. And that's that we have all of that. That won't change the heart of man, will it? All the laws and decrees will not change the heart of man. The speed no more than the 65 per, miles per hour sign on the highway stops you from going at 80, okay? What we need to be praying for is that hearts will change. That's the only way that hearts will change. And we need to be clear and understand that we're not going to have utopia on earth until the, the king, the one true king comes back. Just, just forget about it. It's not going to happen. We'll see hints of it. We'll see laws and things pass, but we are not going to be there until the one rifle heir returns. Jesus Christ. So don't put your hope and trust in politicians and officials, but put them in Christ. Don't put them in laws, but put them in the glory of God and that he will come back to avenge those who come against his people. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us the covenant and the promises that all come with being saved, being washed in your blood. Let us rest and meditate on those. Lord, and we also want to be mindful of the warnings of our sin and the consequences that it don't just put on us, but it puts on all those around us because there's no such thing as an innocent sin or just individual sin because it plagues and it, it trickles and bleeds down through our whole family and through those we love, and the consequences are, could be great. Let us be mindful of that, Lord. We want to experience your glory in us, your glory and your holiness, Lord, as you meant for it to be experienced, Lord. So keep us from evil, Lord, and so that people may see our good works and glorify you. So they may say, who is this God you follow? And they may inquire of you, Lord, just like uh, Ruth did with Naomi. Lord, let us be examples Lord, when we hear about politics and politicians and we hear people talking, let us not stray away from those conversations, but let us use those as segues to speak of your glory and your name and your righteousness. In your son, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.